All right, let us begin our our meeting in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time. We ask your blessing on our efforts this evening as we try to understand uh, the role of the saints as major figures and major beliefs of our Catholic Church and our Catholic faith. Help us then to open our minds and hearts that we might hear what you have to say to us about this and about the universal call to holiness, which we should all take into consideration in a serious way. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Tonight I want to get into some of the history of the saints. But before we do that, um, do you, you all have a registration form now that we were supposed to have you fill out last week, and because I forgot them, uh, they are here tonight. So we would like you to fill those forms out, and if any of you have not had an opportunity to pay your $20 fee, we would appreciate you turning that in to uh, one of the ladies in the back who will take uh, care of that. All right. One of the things I want to cover before we get into that, and uh, it's, I think, of interest to all of us, of us, if you'll turn to the second page of the handout for tonight, it's regarding a question that was asked last week and that I didn't want to answer because I didn't have all the details at hand. And here it is. Now, this is actually a 11-page uh, dissertation, you might say. You only have the first two pages here. But it's important enough, I think, for you to spend the time, if you can, and have the opportunity to go on the Internet and pick up the rest of these pages, because it's an interesting subject. But the main items that were asked last week was when did the doctrine of purgatory actually become uh, a teaching of the church, all right? And although the doctrine itself had been in existence from the early, very early days of the church, it did not become a formal doctrine until the 15th century. And then was still kind of kicked around, you might say, until the Council of Trent in the middle of the 16th century. And so that is what these two pages talk about here. So I'd like to have you read those, not necessarily uh, tonight, but uh, at your leisure during the week, so that you'll be able to see. And as you go, or if you go into the remainder of this uh, work from the Internet, you'll see all of the reasons why it has to be this way. And to give you a very, very brief uh, simplistic synopsis is that because God is 
divinely holy, he cannot live with or have people live with him who are still burdened by sin. And we're talking about venial sins or less serious sins. Anyone who dies uh, with serious sin on their soul, not uh, corrected or rectified uh, in any way or any way of all, uh, are unfortunately damned. But God does not do that. The individual damns himself or herself, all right, by neglect or not caring or just not understanding and not caring uh, to find out, etc., etc., okay? Uh, God does not condemn anyone, but human beings condemn themselves, and that's unfortunate. But those who, out of their own human weakness, have sins on their soul that have not been uh, purged in some way or corrected in some way before they die, then they spend time in purgatory. And kind of look at it this way. There is a particular judgment. That is, when we die, we are judged immediately to know where we go and why. All right? That's called a particular judgment because it is an individual judgment by God on each of us. Now, after we have seen a glimpse of God and then have told that we have to wait a while before we can live with him forever in eternity, that would be agony in itself. That is what the punishment of purgatory is. Forget about, you know, the fire and brimstone and the guy with the long red tail and the pitchfork and all that baloney. Okay. Just the idea of being separated from God after you've had a glimpse of him (coughs) is agony enough. And that is what purgatory is all about. Now, we have no way of knowing uh, in earthly terms the time, the duration, where, and how, and so forth and so on. So I can't give you that, and no one else can either. Um, but we know that there's a lot of myths uh, that have creeped up about uh, purgatory and hell and all of that, and forget it. Just being separated from God whether it be temporarily, as in purgatory, or permanently, as in hell, is uh, agony enough. Okay? All right. But I do encourage you to go in and um, look deeper into this whole idea of purgatory. Okay. Any questions on that, Dick? Is the concept of purgatory found in many of the other Christian or even non-Christian religions? Most of the Christian, other Christian faiths do not accept purgatory. But yet, if you got into the argument about God and his perfect uh, divinity, 
and can we, then that stumps them because they have no way to answer that. All right. So we have a little bit of a dilemma there. All right. Yes, Mike. Concept of purgatory? No. No. It's a hypothesis. You know, it is if such and such is true and such and such is true, then this has to happen. If God is perfectly divine and pure and cannot associate with human beings who still are considered sinners, then there's got to be some way to correct that. And uh, in the second book of Maccabees, there's kind of a, a long passage that kind of refers to that, but that's the Old Testament. So, Yes, that's true. That's kind of the same kind of a concept, right? Yes, by all means. She just explained it is correct. When we say he descended into the Apostles' Creed, when he descended into hell and on the third day he rose from the dead, all right, people will say, well, why would he go to hell? Well, unfortunately, uh, it is a rather uh, poor choice of words when it was translated, all right, and it should not be. But then there's no other word that we can, that we have in our vocabulary or our language that would be sufficient for purgatory unless we use that word uh, in itself. He descended into purgatory. Well, that doesn't sound right either, does it? Um, but descending into hell is not the hell of the damned. It is, as Sue just put it, pointed out, uh, it is that place where people who have, prior to Christ's death, all right, prior to Christ's death on the cross, who died in the good graces of God, were then brought into heaven. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Any other questions on this subject, Connie? Well, that's that's the way some people interpret it, but that is not the way the Catholic Church teaches. All right, that God, out of infinite love, has in His plan of salvation 
has made an exception for those people who died uh, with some sin not rectified in some way, but not serious sin. Okay. And so I think there's plenty of those people. Okay. And we'll all probably be part of that group for a short time. Yeah. Norm? Well, yeah, but that's not the official wording of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Okay. Any other subject or questions on that subject? Again, I strongly recommend that you look into it further because it will answer some of those questions and I think give you some very good background in the event that you're ever asked uh, by someone else. Okay, let's get into the history of the word saints. During the first thousand years of the church, the first millennium, after Christ's death and resurrection, the term was generally not in reference, at least in the beginning, to people who are, were deceased at the time. The term was used for those people who were striving to follow Christ the best they could. Remember, it was a very difficult period where they, shortly after Christ's death and resurrection, when I say shortly, you know, within 15 or 20 years, persecution by the Jews began to develop. They looked upon the Christians as uh, apostates who were desecrating the temple by their very existence when they worshipped someone else, a person by the name of Jesus. To them, the Orthodox Jews would not accept that. And therefore, they became enemies of Judaism and they were persecuted. Uh, So in the writings, and the first writing that we have in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, is in the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And I'll just, it's very brief, so don't bother uh, looking it up. It says, suddenly the... Now, this is in reference to after Christ's death on Good Friday, the first Good Friday, uh, after he was sort of died and gave, you know, gave up his spirit, etc., It says, suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked, boulders split, tombs opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. But the term there, and if you look it up in some of your uh, other Bible translations, you won't see the word saint used, you'll see the words Holy people. Right? Holy people. And that is really what the word saint means. It is taken from the Latin. I did have a pen up here. It is taken from the Latin. 
Sangti. Sangti. Meaning holy people. And that is, of course, where we get many other words from as well. It was used originally to uh, designate or define those people who were striving heroically in a way to follow the teachings of Christ. Gradually, over a period of time, as the persecutions uh, became rather violent and many died because of their faith or for their faith. Remember, there's a difference in dying because of your faith than for your faith. Uh, I don't want to get into all of that, but nevertheless, these people then were all declared saints in a general way. By general acclamation, you might say. They were all declared. Anybody who suffered martyrdom because of his faith or for his faith uh, was considered a saint. And to some degree, that is still true today, although we don't have much of that kind of persecution. Uh, But look at all of the people uh, who were killed by the uh, Nazis during the Second World War uh, and before for a while, simply because they were religious in mind. They were Christians, they were Catholics, uh, or they were Jews, right? And they were all executed. Those people in general were then considered martyrs. And by virtue of being a martyr for their faith or because of their faith, uh, they were then declared saints in general. There are only a few of them, two, uh, two that I can think of offhand, Maximilian Colby, a priest, and Edith Stein, a nun, uh, both of them whom were executed um, simply because, well, Edith Stein was both Jewish and uh, a Catholic nun, and so she got it for double reasons, you might say. Uh, Maximilian Colby was a Catholic priest. Both of those died in Auschwitz. Um, So, during the early part of the first millennium, there were a number of martyrs, and they were then referred to as saints. But the connection between being a saint because of their faith did not hook up with the idea of being in heaven. Because, you see, historically... Being in heaven with God was a fairly new concept. It had developed, you know, gradually over a period of about 200 years before Christ. Remember, up until the 5th century, more like the early part of the 4th century B.C., the whole idea of heaven uh, was non-existent. Uh, as far as human beings were concerned. The whole idea of heaven was solely for God. 
Alright? That goes all the way back to the time of Moses and the burning bush. And later on, uh, when Moses had to go up and down on the mountains, uh, it was always assumed that God came down out of heaven, which was always up there somewhere, and uh, appeared to Moses. Okay? And there was always fire and smoke and trumpets and all kinds of hoopla. Alright? And that is fine. And that idea of heaven carried forth, but that was 15th century B.C. So for well over a thousand years, the whole idea of heaven was solely for the God, for, for God, not for mankind. It wasn't until after the Babylonian captivity in 539 B.C. when the Jews came back, or some of, most of the Jews came back from Babylon did they begin to realize, because they were still under the domination of the Persians, and then later of the Greeks, and then later of the Romans, so they began to realize that they were never going to be uh, totally uh, under or free from any domination. They were never going to be a sovereign nation uh, again. And so they began to look for a new promised land. And gradually over a period of time, this new promised land was connected with the idea of heaven where God was. And sure, that made sense. God created us. God had a plan for us. And we would return to God eventually. Then the next thought came, well, who is going to lead us to this new promised land like Moses did way back? And gradually the idea of a Messiah developed. And their idea of a Messiah in the early days was somebody like David. David was the kind of person who uh, was a great warrior, but he was also a great statesman. And he united all of the 12 tribes of Israel into one nation with himself as their king. All right. And that began, that began the golden age of Judaism back in the 10th century or 9th century BC, uh, with Solomon following him. Kind of went downhill after that. But nevertheless, uh, when they started to look at the idea of a Messiah, and this didn't happen until the early part of the 2nd century B.C., uh, did they begin to think of somebody, again, like David, not God himself. So, even after Christ's death and resurrection, this whole idea of being reunited with the Father still was kind of fuzzy in the minds of many people and not fully accepted by many people. In fact, even half of the Jews then and still now still don't believe in life after death, any form of life with God. All right. But the Christians, and of course when you read the Gospels, Christ talks about being with the Father and 
the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and so forth and so on. So we know that God himself, Jesus Christ, is telling us that there is life after death. And that we should strive to get ourselves there. Now, we cannot do that alone. There is no way that human beings can get to heaven alone. They must work with the Holy Spirit. Alright? And adhere to and partake of the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection. And we do that by listening to and observing and following the teachings of Christ through his church. Uh, there was an email uh, message that went around here just a few weeks ago uh, that was based on some article somebody wrote. And I don't remember where the article appeared first. Uh, but in today's uh, communications uh, system, you know, it can appear in one spot and immediately in a million others. Nevertheless, it was, I believe in Jesus Christ, but I don't believe in the church. Well, when anybody says that, they are sort of contradicting themselves. Because the church is an extension of Jesus Christ. The Catholic Church is an extension of Jesus Christ. And therefore, you, if you love Jesus and want to follow him, then you will want to follow his church. Because you cannot separate the two. Christ himself has said so. You cannot separate the truth, the two. And yet, many people do that today. You'll have some people that will pray and, and do all the, the nice things, but they don't want to go to church. Well, they don't like what Father so-and-so says. They don't want to be told what to do, etc., etc. Then you have other people who will work their fingers to the bone, so to speak. I was going to use some other language. But, um, for the church, but they don't bother praying. When you talk about Jesus, oh, well, I, I don't have time for him. I've got so many things to do for the church that I'm doing this, that I'm this and so. Uh, I just don't have any time for that. All right. Both of those are wrong. We've got to live by accepting Christ and following through what he has told us. And that's why he has given us this church made up of frail human beings. And I don't like some of the things that the church has said either, but nevertheless, if you want to belong to the club, you've got to obey the rules. Right? That's kind of the bottom line, so to speak. All right. Now, I got way off the track, but in a way, uh, I kept you busy for a little bit. <coughs> the whole idea of saints, then, is that these are people who have accepted the teachings of Christ and have accepted the teachings of the church and have 
excuse me, and in their own mind have meld the two and work heroically for both. But the idea is whenever you do something through or for the church, you must always keep in mind that ultimately it is for the greater honor and glory of God. If you can't say that, then you shouldn't be doing it. All of our actions should be with that in mind. Always for the greater honor and glory of God. Now, the whole idea of the saints, particularly in the early church, these people were striving in the midst of persecutions to do exactly that. Live by the teachings of Christ and his church. And for that, many of them died. And rightly so were designated by the church as saints. However, this got out of hand around the 7th or 8th century AD, where almost anybody and everybody who did a lot of good things for the church uh, were sort of by act, general acclamation of the village or the neighborhood or whatever, uh, acclaimed to be a saint without taking into consideration a number of things that have uh, been developed uh, later. Okay. But there is also a number of myths that grew up as well. Take St. Patrick, for instance. There's all kinds of stories about St. Patrick uh, that we question. Uh, one of them is that he drove all the snakes out of Ireland. Well, uh, that may or may not be true. There's no way to prove it or disprove it. Right? Uh, there are myths, for example, about St. Christopher. And poor St. Christopher has been demoted, you might say, and is no longer on the official list of saints within the Catholic Church. And you might say, why? And it's because there is no record there of there ever being a St. Christopher. Okay. It's a myth that has grown up. The word Christopher means Christ-bearer. Okay. And that's why you often see St. Christopher um, pictured with uh, a child or a young person on his shoulders uh, being carried. All right, and that's fine because that's exactly what the name means. But there's no official records anywhere of a Saint Christopher ever having truly lived. And that, of course, has been a, a recent move by the church to get kind of realistic about who's a saint and who isn't. The first official act by Rome didn't happen until towards the end of the 10th century, 9, 963 or something like that. I forgot the exact date. Um, I 
993, uh, when Ulrich of Augsburg was formally declared a saint by Pope John the 15th in 993. This, however, was an informal declaration, and it was not until almost 200 years later that Pope Alexander III took control of the process, and then it became an official function of the Roman Catholic Church in 1234. So it took 1,200 years before the process of who was officially a saint of the church uh, to be developed in a formal way. And even then, it began as sort of a contest, you might say, almost a, a legal uh, trial, because many people opposed the whole idea that that certain uh, criteria had to be set up to measure an individual uh, before he or she could be uh, a declared a saint. Remember, the word made a saint is very improper because no one makes a saint. The individual cooperating with the Holy Spirit is how a person uh, becomes a saint, whether he's declared uh, later officially by the church or not. Okay? But everybody in heaven is a saint by virtue of the meaning of the word. Okay? And the fact that he or she has been purged of any indication of sin one way or the other. All right. Now, after the 12th century, when the Pope finally took control, there was a formality set up as to how a person would be declared a saint. And I'll give you the current um, process right now because it went through many evolutions. If you go on to the internet, you will also find a document like this that's 12 pages long, so I don't think you want me to read that tonight. And it's rather interesting, but it's not easy reading, okay? It's a very official, it's very legal, and it gives abundant references, etc. But it is kind of interesting if you can kind of muddle through all of that, all right? The current process now is that A person has to be dead at least five years before his or her cause can be entered into uh, the process. All right. It is currently by the local bishop in the diocese in which this person lived and died that would enter the cause. And it requires a lot of uh, legal work, a lot of uh, gathering of information, of uh, declarations and correspondence of all kinds. And if the person was uh, a writer of uh, prominence, then all of his writings would have to be collected and submitted along with this. At that time, when his cause is entered into the process, he becomes a servant of God. All right? 
And then the process continues uh, where a miracle that is attributed to the individual, not that he worked the miracle, but through his intercession, and I'm going to say his, but I mean his or hers, always, through the intercession of the individual, uh, a miracle has to be uh, declared and proven. Uh, usually is something pure of some kind by an unrelated person. That Once that has been done, and it requires a lot of pros and cons by people in Rome, uh, years ago there used to be a person who was designated as the devil's advocate. They don't use that term any longer, but that was something rather common. And he would always argue against it. It's the same as we have in today's legal system, where you have the prosecutor and a defendant, uh, or a defense attorney. Uh, you would have the prosecutor would be the devil's advocate, always trying to find loopholes or something wrong with the individual, although he or she, uh, I mean the person being the devil's advocate at the time, um, may fully agree with the idea of this person being processed uh, through the system and declared uh, a saint. But in his capacity, uh, he has to do his, his job. Okay? So, the next step, then, is uh, venerable. Originally, it's servant of God. The next step, the major step, we generally say three steps. Actually, it's four, but uh, most people just think about the three. Venerable is next. And then, after a period of time and more investigations, uh, the person then can be declared uh, blessed. And that is when he or she is given uh, a special day to be honored. Usually it's the date of death or the day before the date of death. Uh, and quite often uh, a church or a building will be named after that person when it one's available. All right. The last step is canonization. So you have venerable, blessed, and then canonization. That is just the formal uh, declaration that the individual is a saint. Prior to that, he can be called, or she can be called blessed, but not saint. After canonization, then the individual can be called saint. And it's interesting how some people, even though they have been canonized, are still called blessed. That's, uh, but that's what, uh, for many years, many of them were called, and the church left it that way, even though they are officially uh, saints. Now, what does that mean? The church has a long list of official rules called the canon. Not a gun of any kind. A canon. Alright? Uh, a list. A list of rules. A list of uh, organizations. 
and a list of people who are declared as being in heaven. That is the official designation and official purpose. These people who are declared as saints because of the long process, the long investigation, and the uh, finding of two, at least two miracles attributed to the individual after their death, then they are put on the official list. And what that means is these people are officially in heaven. That's the whole idea of the word canonization. Those people are officially recognized as being in heaven and therefore we have uh, the right to pray for them and to them. Mostly to them because we're already in heaven so they don't need anything. Uh, It is we who need their help and their prayers. But many people like to honor the saints. Uh, obviously, if you receive some uh, benefit, some answer, positive answer to uh, your prayers through the intercession of a saint, you will want to pray to them in thanksgiving. Okay. But the connection that we must always make in our minds, and when we talk about it, is that this person is recognized as being in heaven with God. Now, that is why you cannot call one of your relatives, even though you feel that he or she was as good as any other saint recognized, uh, you cannot call him or her uh, saint so-and-so. Because you have no way, no official way of proving that that person is in heaven. Even though you may believe it, and it may be correct, uh, the whole idea is there is no way to prove that that person is in heaven. And that's the only connection. We don't want to make a big thing out of this. But what does all of that mean to us? It means that we should strive to be a saint. Some people, well, let's put it this way. You'll often hear somebody say, well, gee, I'm not a saint, but so-and-so-and-so, and, you know, they go on and on. Uh, well, that's no tribute to themselves or anyone else. Because that's what we should all be striving for, is to be a saint. That is what we are all hoping for. That's what heaven is all about. Being with God for all eternity. What else would you be working for? Why would you be striving to be a good person at all if it wasn't that your ultimate goal was to be in heaven with God? And that is what a saint is. In heaven with God. And so that is why we should all strive to be a saint. Now, how do we do that? Well, you begin with prayer. And a lot of people say, oh, I don't like praying, you know. 
have to be on my knees and so forth. Uh-uh. You don't have to be on your knees all the time. St. Paul tells us in one of his letters is that we should play, we should pray without ceasing. Well, that throws a lot of people because all they can think of is 24 hours on their knees or whatever. Uh-uh. That's not what he means. He means that everything that you do should be as if God was standing right in front of you. And that you were trying your very best to honor and please him. Alright? So that what you were doing, whatever it might be, in word or work, you do for the greater honor and glory of God. That's what striving to be a saint is all about. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to go out and do great and and heroic things. If you look at the early saints, they were either martyrs or they were great theologians or they were people who founded religious orders almost exclusively. Uh, Unfortunately, it was an unwritten kind of feeling within the church that we average people in the pew could never, never be considered holy. That just was beyond our capability. It was only the priests, religious, the monks, you know, the nuns, and a few maybe people like kings and queens or something like that. Uh, It was not until 1964 when the document of the Declaration, uh, the dogmatic document of that, whatever, uh, of the church. I got a constantly dogmatic constitution on the church. All right. Chapter five. And this is what you have from your handout last week. All right. When it was decided that everybody has the same opportunity to get to heaven. Everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, nationality, religion, or what, has the opportunity to get to heaven. And we must strive to do that. I hope that you have had an opportunity to read uh, this portion of this document. Uh, it's interesting that the documents of the of Vatican II, the 16 major documents, there are many others that came out of those but the 16 major documents of the Catholic Church are probably next to the Catechism uh, the most important things you could possibly read. They are not difficult to understand. They are not heavy language like uh, this one on purgatory. Okay, um, They are very interesting and several of the books that contain these documents have some rather lengthy synopsis uh, that are even easier to read. And so I do recommend that uh, whenever you have the opportunity that you get a book on the 16 documents of Vatican II. But chapter 5 out of this dogmatic constitution of the church is called the universal call to holiness. Universal meanings (coughs) excuse me Um, that everyone, regardless 
of who he is, what status he or she is, um, is called to be holy and has the right and same opportunity. Any questions? Uh, did I leave you so confused that you don't know what questions to ask? All right. Yes. The same place that any Catholic, in any, any follower of God. Where were they? Alright, this is what we had talked about earlier when we said he descended into hell, but we didn't mean the hell of the damned, we mean the hell of <coughs> those waiting to be brought into heaven by virtue of Christ's death on the cross. The, whole, the question really is about in reference to those people of the Old Testament who lived a, a, who lived a good, good life and, like anyone else, was eligible for heaven. Where did they, where did their souls go? And that is what we call, uh, Shalom, Shale, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Shale. Um, that is the abode of the dead that rests in the bosom of Abraham, putting it in Jewish terms. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and Mike's got a good point there. The Jews that do not believe in the life after death believe neither in heaven or hell. That there is no existence, and therefore there would be neither side, you see. All right. It's interesting also, the church does, does recognize many holy people of the Old Testament, but none of them are listed on the canon of the church. Right. That doesn't mean that they are not considered as saints. It is just that there is no record, uh, there is no process, and therefore we do not call any of the holy people of the Old Testament, saint so-and-so, all right? For example, David uh, or uh, Samuel or any of those, uh, the prophets, etc., we don't call them saint. But nevertheless, we recognize their prominence and important a contribution uh, to all of us. Did you have a question? No. Well, you see, I mean, is that not true? I mean, do whatever you want. Well, but that's not really what they do, though. You take, for example, the Hasidic Jews or the Ashkenazi Jews. They are ultra conservative in following their faith through the teachings of Moses. 
All right. And they are very sincere about it. They're the ones uh, that wear the black hats and, you know, the curls and don't shave and so forth and so on. Uh, they're very sincere in their faith. Uh, but when they die, that's it. Um, well, that's the way we look at it, but that's not the way they look at it. Yes. And it would be sad if God created all of us for a particular reason and then said, well, your time is up, goodbye. Sayonara and all of that. Um, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be God. You see? And Jesus, of course, tells us about the kingdom of heaven in many different ways. And he talks about uh, the heavenly banquet. Heaven is always or often, most often, uh, described in some way as a banquet. Well, since nobody has been there and come back to tell us, we... I'm sorry? Oh, well, all right, okay. (laughs) Accepting him. No one else has been there and come back to tell us, so we have to write it in only terms that we can understand. And that is what we have. Uh, It might be something entirely different, but there is no way to describe it uh, in any other term that, you know, presents the same idea. Okay. Yes, Dick? Our document that we're reading would seem to indicate when it says, uh, in order that they may reach this perfection, they must use their strength accordingly as they have received it as a gift from Christ. Mm-hmm. It would seem to indicate to me that some of us are given more grace or more tools to be holy than others. Yes, but more than is expected of you also. That's true. Okay? But the end result is you'll all be at the footsteps of God or the throne of God and be totally filled with grace. And, you know, when you're totally filled, whether you're a big container or a small container, if you're totally filled, that's all you can accept. Uh, uh, Dick's point is, is correct. We are all given a portion of God's plan of creation and God's plan of salvation. And some of us are given a rather large and very extensive portion of this. I use the analogy uh, or metaphor of a mosaic. You have, and you all know what a mosaic is, a picture made with little stones, all right? But some of those stones are very plain, and others are very brilliant, uh, outstanding in some way. But it takes all the stones to make the picture. And that is the way I always envision heaven and the inequality that we see on earth being brought together and sort of smoothed out. God gives each of us a certain portion of his plan of salvation. 
And as we fill that, we then become the stone that we were intending. In fact, St. Peter uses that uh, analogy too. You are like living stones. I forgot to hear the, it's in the first letter of uh, St. Peter. He says, you are living stones being built into an edifice or a building, meaning the kingdom of God. And when we all fulfill our particular role, then we get our place in that overall picture. And again, it takes all of us to complete that picture. If you've ever seen a mosaic that's being repaired, uh, and some of the stones have popped out, uh, or taken out for cleaning or whatever, uh, when you look at it quickly, you don't see the picture. All you see is those spots. But when this, the picture is, is repaired and all of the stones are put back in, then you step back, you don't see those stones, you see the whole picture. And that is what we should be looking at. All right. Uh, Steve, are you ready? All right. At this time, I'd like to introduce Steve Cooley, who's going to give us a discussion on the communion of saints. Now, we all say that I believe in the communion of saints when we say the Nicene Creed on Sunday. But do we? Do we really understand what the Nicene Creed says? Do we really understand the communion of saints? You'll have to... Thank you, Mel. Uh, Tough act to follow. So when Mel asked me to help, I thought, well, what, what can I contribute to this class? I'm still thinking about that, but... Then I thought, well, he's asked me to talk about the communion of saints, and so lots of resources out there. Um, I first thought of the word communion, and what does that mean? Um, So you look at the word communion, and we see that it's related to a lot of other words that we use. Um, Common, community, you can probably think of ten more in the next few minutes here. so in general, that's that's where I kind of started, um, is thinking about what does the word communion mean? And keep in mind, we want to keep that separate from what we call Holy Communion, although that's a very important part of our communion. Uh, so I went to the uh, Catholic Encyclopedia, and here's what I found. The communion of saints is the spiritual solidarity which binds together the faithful on earth the souls in purgatory, and the saints in heaven in the organic unity of the same mystical body under Christ its head and in a constant interchange of supernatural offices. The participants in this solidarity are called saints by reason of their destination and of their partaking of the fruits of the redemption. Notice that uh, the encyclopedia says the participants, and we've included all three of those levels of participants. 
So we're all called to be saints, and we're all called saints, actually. Um, St. Paul uses the term rather loosely throughout his letters. And uh, so we're all saints, and we're all called to this communion. You might have heard that uh, these three levels are, are traditionally called the church militant. Okay, that's us, right? We're still, we're still in the battle. The church suffering are the souls in purgatory. And the church triumphant are the souls in heaven. So then I decided, well, okay, the uh, encyclopedia, pretty good definition. Um, what's this interchange of supernatural offices? That's a lot of big words. I thought, well, what does this mean? And this is the communion that we have under Christ as, as the head. Uh, whereby we share in in everything that Christ gives us. This brings to mind that um, we can pray for one another, as we do now. We have prayer lines within our community. We pray for each other's needs. Um, this also extends to, to the souls in heaven, the saints in heaven. Um, and it's really... I think a lot of times we've put too much thought into it. Um, this is really what we're talking about as a big family, the people of God. Um, then I went to the catechism. And catechism paragraph number 946 says very simply, the communion of saints is the church. I thought, well, there's the answer. That's an easy one, right? Well, uh then you have to start thinking about, well, what is the church? Um, the church is the building that we go to every Sunday. The church is this idea that we have. Um, we're in union with one another, with all of these churches. But it's much more than that. The church is the body of Christ. We know St. Paul talks about that. Um, but what does that mean? So you can see I went and all these tangents, and I tried to bring all this together, and I, this is a big this is a big deal. We proclaim every Sunday, as Mel has said, are we really thinking about it? And so, part of what I've always taken from, from Mel's courses is, we don't just leave it here, we want to take it home and think about it. And so, you know, I encourage everyone to think about, well, what is the church? Because that, that's the big, the big story. Uh, the communion of saints is the church. Um, there's several several passages in the catechism that deal with the church, and if you go through and read each one, you can get little tidbits from each one that drive you in all these different directions. The church is communion of saints. It's endless study, endless study. So the church is Christ's body. Um, I put down in my notes here that I the, the four pillars of the communion of saints. This is my own terminology. This is not official. Uh, this is just my way of thinking of it. Uh, so I came up with these four pillars. Uh, the church is Christ's body. Okay. Christ has only one body, not one here on earth, that's us, and one in heaven. He can't have two bodies. He's got one body. Christians are not separated from each other by death. Um, 
this is an important part of, of uh, understanding the communion of saints. Uh, these are our brothers and sisters who have gone before us. And um, St. Paul tells us that we're not separated by death. Um, in Romans chapter 8, what will separate us from the love of Christ? I am convinced that neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God. I've paraphrased there some. That's Romans 8, 35 through 39. So death doesn't have the power to separate us from the members of Christ's body. Uh, this is that organic unity that the, the uh, encyclopedia is talking about. Uh, the third pillar, I'm sorry, that was the third pillar. The fourth pillar, Christians must love and serve each other. Okay, love one another as I have loved you. Does that change when when people die? Is it different for the saints in heaven? Um, their capacity to love is so much greater. Uh, their capacity to pray for us is so much greater. Um, so those are my, just my little four pillars. Um, I also think about ways of explaining, because it's one thing to say, okay, I believe in the communion of saints. That's great. And you might have an understanding of what that means, but how do you explain it to others, people, when they ask? Um, you know, a lot of the things that we believe as Catholics are not explicitly taught in Scripture. We know that. Um, we also know that the church came before Scripture. That Scripture is a product of the church. So there are plenty of supports for uh, the communion of saints. Um, it's easy to do a search. That, matter of fact, that's what I did. Is I searched on the Internet, and I came up with a list of, of Scriptures. Um, so I would encourage uh, additional study on that. Um, which leads me to an idea that I, that I thought about was that our faith is a seamless garment. Okay, You can't talk about the communion of saints unless you talk about the church. Well, what does it take to be a member of the church? Baptism. So you can't talk about the church unless you talk about baptism. Baptism is one of the sacraments. You can't talk about baptism unless you talk about how important the sacraments are. Sacraments are a means of grace. So you've got to talk about grace. Then you move on to salvation. Well, how was salvation won for us? It was won for us through Christ's sacrifice. And, you know, then you, then you start talking about the Mass as a sacrifice. And you move into the priesthood. So our faith is a seamless garment. And uh, oftentimes when you get into discussions with uh, non-Catholic Christians, especially. Um, you might be talking about one subject, and they move on to another one before you can finish talking about that one. And then when you start talking about that one, they move on to another subject. Well, what about Mary, or what about purgatory? Pretty soon you're talking about the entire faith. And in a way, you know, it, it's uh, it's rather telling that Protestants will do that because it's a seamless garment 
Our faith is the seamless garment. So I would encourage further study. Um, I've got some some links available. Uh, you know, new media has been a tremendous gift to our sharing our faith. And so, uh, thank you, Steve. <clears throat> One of the things that um, struck me while he was speaking is the word family. Now, when we have a loved one who died, such as I did recently, uh, you don't forget them. They're part of your household, even though they're not uh, among you in a living way. But let me let me do a little comparison of the subject as Steve brought it out. Communion of saints is really a family of holy people, whether living or dead. Does that make sense? It's an easier way to follow and understand. Quite often when we think, as Steve pointed out, one of the things that we often think about and we, when we heard the word communion, is holy communion. And then that kind of throws us. It isn't. If you cut that word right there, it means common union. In this case. A common union. And that's what a family is. A common union of holy people. That's what the church is. Whether living or dead. You don't cut the dead people off. They are part of. And we can pray to them and we can pray for them. And they in heaven can pray for us. And that's why you want to continue this whole idea. Because at some point in time, we're going to be up in heaven with them. I hope. For myself and all of you. Okay, that you'll be up there with them. And you don't want to be forgotten. And you want to be reunited with your family eventually. So that's the whole idea of the communion of saints. Any questions? Dick? I have my common problem with it in that the whole discussion is inclusive. And it should be pervasive. In other words, we can't think of the communion of saints as the church because that would say the Jews and no, others no. are not part of it. That's right. That's right. The communion of saints represents all of those who accept Christ. Period. But then that leads to the discussion that if you don't believe in, if you don't support Christ, you can't get to heaven. No, it doesn't. There will people who will get to heaven who are not part of the communion of saints. Okay. That's what you're concerned with. Mm -hmm. Those people who are not Christians, who have not accepted Christ, can they get to heaven? And the answer is yes. We don't have any rules or regulations for or against them. And so we can say, yes, that possibility is there. But we don't know under what conditions. But they don't have this help. They're not part of the family. That family. Susan? That's right. Yes. Yes. That's a good point. 
She says, we don't make the rules as to who goes to heaven. God does. And you're right. Uh, you know, I will never say this person cannot go to heaven because that's not, first of all, my responsibility. And I don't know the whole spectrum of that person's life. Okay. All right. I want to stop here for a moment because I want to talk a little bit about next week. Next week will be primarily a DVD that we will be presenting and the chairs will be facing that wall because the screen is up there. All right. Um, so that's uh, one little change that's relatively minor. So come early so you can get a front row seat. All right. No popcorn. Okay. Um, now, this DVD is presented by Father Robert Barron, who has done a magnificent job in creating a whole series of DVDs on Catholicism. That is the name of the collection of ten DVDs, Catholicism. There's also a book that goes along with it, which I think is excellent. I have it. I have both of them. All right. Uh, it will take approximately an hour uh, for this DVD. Uh, we're only going to see half of it also. It is on four different women saints. Or, in one case, a person who is in the process but has not been canonized yet. That's Mother Teresa. Okay. Um, he gives a lot of good, solid information. So I think you will want to come and what I'd like you to do is invite anyone else that you think might benefit from it. They don't have to stay for uh, or join and pay $20 or whatever. But in, bring your friends and your family. We'll try to set up more chairs. Uh, so it's something that everybody, I think, should have an opportunity to see. Uh, four women uh, saints, or will be saints. All of them are very different. Some of them have done great things in the eyes of the world, and one of them has done virtually nothing except write a very important book, her own autobiography, which has gain tremendous uh, popularity since she died in 1924, I believe it is. The other is uh, St. Catherine Drexel. You may have heard of Drexel University. Uh, Drexel University is now establishing a branch here. Their main campus is in Philadelphia. They are trying to establish a campus in Sacramento, and they want to build a four-year uh, college campus right near us here um, off of Baseline and Watt Avenue. All right. Uh, the other one is Edith Stein, who was a Catholic nun, but from a Jewish family. She was a very prominent uh, person in, in the Jewish family who then became an outstanding scholar and in her pursuit of her studies she finally came across Catholicism and 
finally joined a convent. Uh, then you have Mother Teresa, and we all know who she is. All right. So I think you'll enjoy uh, this DVD, and then we'll have a discussion on it afterwards. Okay. Because I think uh, it'll create probably more questions than you came in with. And keep in mind that as you see the DVD next week, uh, the whole idea of saint, sainthood, what it took to be a saint, each one of these people had to uh, go through uh, some real trials one way or the other, spiritual or physical, in order to reach the level of holiness that they did. So I think you'll enjoy that. Any questions? Well, I hope you got something out of this tonight. Steve, excuse me. All right, why don't you give us, yeah, come come up here. and uh, First Corinthians 3.12 gives us a shadow of the purgatory. Um, if anyone builds on this foundation, and Paul talking about Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, or straw, the work of each will come to light, for the day will disclose it. He's talking about the day of, of Christ's return. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of one's work. If the work stands that someone built on the foundation, that person will receive a wage. But if someone's work is burned up, that one will suffer loss. The person will be saved, but only as through fire. 1 Corinthians 3.12 uh, yes, plus Edith Stein and Catherine Drexel. Yes, all four of them within the hour. Yes. It's beautifully done with pictures, uh, of each one of those taken, uh, in their particular, uh, place of, of, uh, living. Okay. Alright. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for permitting us this evening, this time uh, to share our thoughts and the whole concept of sainthood, which we strive for and hope to obtain. So we ask your blessing on us, and we ask that the Holy Spirit guide and direct us toward that ultimate goal of holiness and to be with you forever in heaven. So we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing on our efforts uh, in the coming weeks, particularly as we approach the holy season of Lent. Uh, give us the guidance uh, and the goal that we should uh, strive for during this time. So we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.